Psalm 121, I begin reading in verse 1, reading the entirety of the psalm. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it in your hearing even this morning. Psalm 121, beginning with verse 1, there we read, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's ask for his help as we consider it even this morning together. Father, as we now turn to what is indeed an encouraging psalm, a psalm that speaks of your work on behalf of weary pilgrims, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to the truth of it, that we would listen to what it is indeed as it is preached, that which is for your people. May you strengthen us by your spirit and may he instruct us Even now, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It was John Wesley who wrote the following. Though waves and storms go o'er my head, though strength and health and friends are gone, though joys be withered all and dead, though every comfort be withdrawn, on this my steadfast soul relies, Father, thy mercy never dies. Fixed on this ground will I remain, though my heart fail and flesh decay. This anchor shall my soul sustain. When earth's foundation melt away, mercy's full power I then shall prove loved with an everlasting love. Why is it, do you think, that a man like John Wesley and so many other Christians throughout the history of our, uh, our most precious faith, those that have lived, even are living and will live into the future, can sing this hymn and can say these things with such unswerving confidence. Are they somehow superhuman saints that were immune to the trials of this life? What are we to make of men who suffered at the hands of wicked people yet remained steadfast to the Lord? How do we explain those who were tortured and killed for the sake of Christ yet remained immovable in their allegiance to Him? What shall we say about these people of whom the world was not worthy? What was it about them? The psalm answers the question. What was it about them that gave them such unswerving allegiance to the God of heaven? What was it that sustained them and kept them going even in the face of such abject opposition? What keeps you going day unto day? I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It was their cry. It should be yours. For life is hard. I know, not immune to any of it. 
There are many dangers, dangers from without, there are dangers from within, there are dangers close by and dangers yet to be seen. There are hard and dark providences that every one of us will bear at some point in life, maybe right now even. There are days of great delight. Yet through them all, can you, my friends, say, my help is in the Lord. The problem for most people, of course, is that they don't really understand their need of help. They are, after all, very good Americans. They're self-sufficient, independent. They're able to navigate the sea of life, or so they think. For the Christian, there should be a constant ready awareness of your absolute need for help. Not just to get through the day, which indeed we need, and I've often quipped and commented about how I see no way, frankly, how any unbeliever gets through the day without Christ. But for the Christian, there should be always this awareness of this great need for help, not just now, but as you journey to your heavenly rest in the new Jerusalem that awaits And let's be painfully honest with one another. Let's be painfully honest with ourselves. And one of the tasks of a preacher is to try to make you do that with the Spirit's help. You're not as strong as you think you are. Peter wasn't. We heard of his demise, even though he confidently stated how he would never do those things. You're not as strong as you think you are. What is it to do then? What is it we can do? We can toss up our hands in defeat and walk away and act like there's no chance, no hope in the world. Or we can do exactly what these pilgrims here in Psalm 121 do. They look for their help, not in themselves, not in their stuff, relationships or substances, They look for help in the Lord of glory, period. Friends, that's where you need to look. That's where I need to look day unto day as I, as you, journey to the heavenly rest that's been promised to all of us. Indeed, the psalm is painting that very picture. Because you might note there at the very the superscription there at the in your English Bible right above verse one of your Bible you'll see that it's a song of ascents. It is actually the second of fifteen so-called psalms here in the psalm book in the divine hymn book. They are songs that were sung as God's people would journey. They would make the pilgrimage to worship. That place, of course, was Jerusalem. It was some elevated, some thousands of feet above where most of them were, and the journey itself was hard. The journey itself was laden with great difficulty. The emphasis, then, not on the difficulty, is it? For that's assumed. The emphasis in the psalm is on the deliverer. 
the one of which we look to help. It's not the hardship so much that the psalm points out. It's the one who helps us in our time of great need. The one who will indeed, like these pilgrims, arrived at Jerusalem to worship. We too, as pilgrims, will arrive at the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. And there worship in perfect, perfect ways, in a perfect manner, the very God of heaven. The psalm highlights how and from whom this will occur. And so I'm going to show you with God's help this morning that as a child of the one who made heaven and earth, you should be comforted by your God who helps you and gives you plenty of reasons to trust him. I'm going to show you that this psalm is teaching us that as a child of the Lord, as pilgrims in this world, ones made by He who made heaven and earth, you should be comforted by Him who helps you and gives you plenty of reasons to trust Him. We'll see this psalm in two points this morning. We'll first consider the Christian's comfort just from verses 1 and 2, and then we'll see the Christian's confidence. The Christian's comfort, and then the Christian's confidence as outlined for us in these eight very brief, probably well-known verses of God's Word. Let's first consider the Christian's comfort. The context is vitally important if we're going to understand this psalm and find any hope for our lives in it. For none of you, of course, are making the journey to Jerusalem. You're not walking through the lands of Israel. You're not making the trek from some low land in that nation, that country, up to a place much higher than yours, much in elevation. But in much the same way you are. This context here, as I've already noted and pointed out, is the second of what is known as the Psalm of Ascents, the Psalms of Ascent. It's that which the worshipers would sing as they make their journey to that place of worship. In those days, there was only one place, or at least there was only supposed to be one place, and that was in Jerusalem, there where the temple was erected. And as they ascended this mountain, and indeed Jerusalem is on a mountain, they would sing and they would prepare and they would take note of what they are about to do as they enter into this city of which the glory of God dwells. There they would gather in formal worship to the Lord of heaven. And so we must begin here if we're to rightly understand the things that the psalmist is teaching us. We note first, of course, is that this is really an act, indeed a preparation to worship. In some sense, it was as though there was some sort of liturgy going on in this psalm, because as you note, the psalm begins really much with the personal pronoun, my, verse 1. But later, it changes to you and your, as though there's some sort of a refrain going on, as one worship leader would say one thing, and then other people, or maybe groups of people, would respond in kind. Kind of the way we do it here, well, we sort of do it here. When we sing a hymn and some of you say amen and some of you just sit there like you don't know what you just sang. 
This dialogical worship, this back and forth, it's part and parcel of what is happening here. Put a different way, it's as though the, the, the person, whoever he is, that says, my, in verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then as you work your way down, there's a response that occurs from the people. But however you are to take all of that, one thing we do know for certain is that this is an act of preparation. The song it, it being sung is one that prepares the mind of the worshipers to enter into the very presence of God. It is no small matter. Preparation for anything, of course, is important. Most of you, some of you, probably spent, I'll go out on a limb here, maybe just a little bit, probably spent more time preparing to get in the car to come to church this morning than you did preparing to worship when you, in the whole point of coming. Many of us do that when it comes to very important things in our lives, anniversaries, children being born. We get the room all ready, paint it blue, paint it pink, one or the other, unless you're having twins. We make reservations when we prepare to go on vacation. We make sure the airline flights, if you like to fly, are all set in place. All the reservations are done. We spend a great deal of time. Why do we do that? Because they're important They're necessary, they're vital, and so we give the energy necessary to make the preparation. But when it comes to this labor, and worship, by the way, is labor, do you prepare? Here are the worshipers, the 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 pilgrims here in Psalm 121, they're preparing as they have this, this back-and-forth dialogue, as they're making this ascent to Jerusalem, there's a preparation going on. Their minds are being readied for what they're, they're about to do. They're about to go meet with this God they just said is their help. And they're getting themselves all ready to do what they will do, and that is praising the God of heaven. For it's difficult even, wouldn't it be, to read Psalm 121 and not end that way? In praise? And thanksgiving to what God has done, it is in the confines of worship that we find the help, and therefore we need to carry on as pilgrims in this life as we give thanks to the one who gives us the help to begin with. To think that we have no need of worship today is to behave foolishly. The fact is, brothers and sisters, that worship done the way God has commanded it, not the way the world has erected it, man-made inventions of nonsense that goes on in pulpits and churches all over this country, worship is vital to your spiritual well-being, to the help that you need, because it is here that you meet what this is picturing in this psalm. You meet the God of heaven as he's present, as he offers himself to you, to help you, to strengthen you. Through what? Through the simple things. There's no fireworks going off behind me. There's, no, there's never going to be a smoke machine or any kind of dancing lights across the ceiling. Simple things. God is here. He seeks to meet the needs of his people. How does he do that? Through the reading of his word, through the preaching of it, the sacraments that are before you in prayer. The problem for us, of course, is that's not the kind of help we want. We want help some other ways. Some emotional experience. Not that emotions are bad, but they come and then they go. We need the rooted, firm, solid foundation of what God has articulated 
constitutes worship. And it's there when that is done and God in His kindness, even though we don't worship perfectly, God in His kindness gives to us the help that we need as we prepare to come to Him every Lord's Day. We find that help and when we dispense with this help, when we jettison it, and it's offered to you, excuse me, it's offered to you twice every Lord's Day here. Some of you don't take advantage of it. Twice. You get to meet the God of heaven and find help. When one dispenses with these things, it's a no wonder their Christian life begins to stagnate. It's a no wonder they begin to get run over by the world. It's a no wonder they apostatize the faith. It is no surprise to me. It ought not be to you. I've seen it not once, not twice, many times. People who decide they don't need the church. They don't need its worship. They don't need any of it. It's not too long, usually, after that, when the world runs right over them. And so in this context here, these worshipers, as they prepare, as they come, they know that not only does help come from the Lord, it comes by the way the Lord orders and instructs and gives to His people. But it's not just in corporate worship that we need help or find it. Really, we find it necessary that we might live all of life to the glory of God. Not just on the Lord's Day, but all of it. That is to say that the worship of God is being done here this morning should move you. It should move me to live all of my life, all of your life to the very glory of God. This is Paul's point, Romans 12, that we are to live our lives as living sacrifices. It's a worship category. We do that in our jobs. We do that As we raise our families, we do that as we seek to do all that God has told us. We do that as we drive our cars. You know, I like to always get that one in because, well, I just do. It should affect everything. And it springs right out of here. But it can't happen if the Lord doesn't help us. Unless we determine to move in the ways in which God has told us to do it a way that He has ordered us. When one doesn't prepare for worship, when one doesn't care about worship, when one just sits there and doesn't try to sing, when these things are all occurring, it's no wonder they begin to wander around and stagnate in their Christian experience. It's nothing but heartbreaking to watch. And so no wonder their Christianity becomes mediocre. They're always looking for the next thing. The next thing is right here in the psalm. It's right here. This is the answer. The help that we need doesn't come from all of those enterprises made by man. It comes from the God of heaven. Now, the condition here given by the psalmist is quite obvious, isn't it? There's an assumption made that if one could say or ask the question, where does my help come or help come from, that there must be a need. For one doesn't typically ask for help unless there's a need. Help needed, even a help desired, even a help required here in the psalm. The psalmist wants help. The, the worshipers want help. You come here in the, on the Lord's Day to worship the God of heaven, but you also come and acknowledge, whether you know it or not, that you need help. I need help. 
problem for most Americans, sadly, and to their own ruin. And church-going people, they live independent lives. I don't need anybody, and I don't need any help. I'm good. I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people. I know they need help. I've tried without being rude, without turning on the Yankee in me, which is not always easy. I'm looking them right in the face, and I know their lives are crumbling right in front of me, but they won't say a word to me even though I talk right to them. Even ask them, how can I help you? What can I do for you? No, I'm good. I'm fine. No, no problems. Everything's great. That's the American response. Shouldn't be a Christian response. We all need help. We are all dependent people. We are creatures of dust. We all need help. I can't go from here to there on this platform without God's help. I can't leave this room without God's help. I can't breathe on my own without God's help. Why do I think I'm so capable of doing all the things that God asked me to do without His help? I can't live without His help. Where does my help come from? I have to first admit there is a need. Too bad, too often, people say, I'm good, I don't need it. But you know, humanity is in desperate need of help. You don't have to look around very far in the world. You don't have to turn on the news for long to see it. In the lives of the unregenerate, especially, in the need of help of a sovereign God who's compassionate and the same time terrible in all of his judgments, who is full of loving kindness, but will never clear the guilty. What help do they need? They need the help of Christ. They need the gospel. They are facing a Christless eternity, and it's tragic, and it doesn't have to happen. Their help starts there. Be merciful to me, a sinner. You know the expression, the first step in solving any problem is admitting you have one. The problem is the unregenerate have a problem, but they don't want to admit it. And it isn't a temporal one. It's an eternal one. It is indeed their greatest need, but the regenerate have need, needs too. You need help. Brothers and sisters, you need it. And you can sit there and try to tell me all day long and con me if you'd like that you don't need help. And you know what? You're just lying to yourself. I need help. You need it too. Considering what has been said about worship, perhaps it may help you to know that one of the reasons we worship together, even as these pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem, are doing it together, is because we need one another. I know you might be thinking, well, there's some people in this room I don't really need as much. Some of them are kind of annoying. Some of them aren't. You know what? That's what God does. He puts a bunch of ragtag bunch of yahoos in the same building, in the same place, and expects us to dwell in unity together and work with each other, help each other, that we might arrive at our heavenly rest together. That's what he does. Get used to it. You called me for crying out loud to this church, and I'm nothing like a Midwesterner. Go even further. The Lord called me into an eastern Tennessee mountain town as a Yankee. Now, if you don't think God has a sense of humor... We need each other. 
You don't do it over Zoom or live stream. We worship in the same room with the same people, with the same voices, singing the same hymns and the same psalms and listening to the same sermon and strengthening one another and encouraging one another. Yeah, we all have our feelings and annoyances. Look, I've got plenty of them. I'm sure you could list them all. Be careful because I could probably list yours. But see, here's the point. It doesn't matter. We need each other to help each other in this journey. Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And if you do that, you are saying, I don't need help. I don't need help. I'm good. I can't tell you the number of people I've encountered in my ministerial life that struggle with their faith while at the same time they try to do it all by themselves. No wonder they struggle. You ever consider how many letters the Apostle Paul wrote that were written to churches, not just to individuals, although there were a few of those? We need each other. You can't do it alone. It won't turn out well if you try. It just won't. It's not the way God designed it. You're just fighting his system. And so these people, they call out, they recognize that they are needy people for any number of reasons. But they call out together. It's a collective whole and the plurality of the people. What's the call? It's the call for help, whether they know it or not. It's illogical to assume that every human being will seek that help in one of two places. Because even the most hardened person who says, I don't need anybody, I don't need help, actually doesn't live that way. They go to the grocery store, they use the gas station, uh, the host of things. They're acknowledging their need by their behavior. This psalm drives us in one of two directions to seek the help needed. By inference, Help could be sought in worldly sources. It really shouldn't surprise us, I don't think, when we see the unregenerate seek help in a myriad of places. They find it in all sorts of stuff. I'm going to give you a list of those in a second. But what really should surprise you, and it surprises me when it's me, is when I answer the question, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from, and I answer it in all the ways that the psalmist doesn't. What are those ways that we are often prone to look for the help that only God can give? Well, let's start with the easy one. The government. We don't find our help there. I can't tell you how many people are ensnared in this one. They find their help, their comfort, their hope in the government. It helps pay their bills. It helps pay their unemployment. It helps pay a lot of things. That's where their help is. That's where their source of relief is. That's where their source of comfort is. That's their source of peace. But we're told not to put our trust in princes. They fail. They fail often. Maybe we put our hope in our children. They become, as it were, idols in our own lives, which is really the point of the first verse of the psalm. The hills representing the high places, the places where the the, the foreign idols would dwell and the places in which they were hidden. It's always a danger for parents to place their trust and hope in their kids. Sure, you love them. I hope so. You cherish them. Good. Good. Just remember, they're fallible. You might put your hope in other relationships. 
your marriage, elders and pastors. What? Yeah. Guess what? We fail too. They're all good things. God uses them, but they must never take His place. Substances. Medical science is wonderful. It's helpful. It can also be addictive. It can push people to lean on them for help instead of the name of the Lord. Never mind the other items that aren't so helpful. Hobbies. God is not a joy killer, you know. I know you think, oh, well, you know, if I really serve the Lord the way He's told me, I'm not going to have any fun. Really? That's why you think you don't really understand the God of heaven. He's not a joy killer. We should have fun, but life is not all about fun. It is serious. We need to take it seriously. Even in the blessing, we can find our hope there and not where it should be from the one who gave it. Maybe our employment is that which we trust. Well, I don't know about you, but the economy doesn't look too good and layoffs are happening everywhere. But you place all your hope in that. You might find out quickly that there wasn't much to hope in. As necessary as it is to living in this world, it is not the ultimate source of help. It is a means to feed you, to clothe you, to house you, to give you all the things you pray, give me this day my daily bread. None of these things and many more should answer the question, where does my help come? No, the only source is the way it's expressed in the psalm. It's the only source. The point, of course, is that, is that the worshipers, as they were heading to the place of worship in dangerous circumstances, in difficult days, and trying issues, hard marriages, hobbies, government, substances, their only answer, their answer for them was that their hope and help is in the true God of heaven and earth. May it be so of all of God's people. Not the idols of their day or the idols of our day. It is the Lord that we place our hope. Only Him. The only source of true help as we pilgrim to heaven, to our heavenly rest. In what sense is the Lord the source of our help? Just consider a few items. I jotted these down yesterday afternoon as I was just thinking through just a a list. I'm not going to dwell on any of them. They speak for themselves, I think. The first one is obvious. He has redeemed you from a life of sin and misery. I mean, really, there's nothing more to say. The, The rest of the list just kind of falls apart pales in comparison to this one. He has promised you eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. He's given you great promises. It's a good exercise. Sit down. If you struggle with trusting the Lord, sit down and look up all the promises of God in the Bible and pray over them. They're yours. They belong to you. He hears you when you cry out to Him in prayer. Show me a person that you are apparently trusting right now that always listens to you when you talk to them. I mean, I'm your pastor, and sometimes people contact me, they'll text me, they'll write me, whatever the case may be. I can't always answer. I can't always respond. And even if I could, I really can't solve every problem or any problem. But He hears you when you cry out to Him, day, night, wherever you may be, driving your car, standing in the shower. 
sitting in your family room, he hears you. Well, I don't feel that way. Well, it doesn't matter. He still does. He hears you. He strengthens you as you worship him in spirit and truth as he has commanded in his word and not by some invention. He feeds you daily. Every day you eat because of God's good pleasure. He feeds you. Imagine if he didn't. He just said, you know what, this, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. That ungrateful person down there, they don't care. And I'm not feeding them anymore. How hard would it be for him to starve you? But he does. Not the grocery store, not your job, not your family, not your parents. God does it. He's the one. He feeds you physically, doesn't he? He also feeds you spiritually. He's given you his word. Do you read it? Well, I'm trusting the Lord, but I never opened the Bible. Okay. He blesses you with his presence and the offering of the Lord's Supper to remind you of his eternal love every time you sit here. Many things are going on at this table, by the way. But every time he's reminding you one more time because we forget so easily. He loves us. He loves us. It's not going to change. He is the only source by which we lean on and find hope and help. Christians have been given public worship to help them in their private and public lives before the Lord, between the Lord's days. Christians know with clarity their greatest need and why they were made, and that is to worship God and find help from Him. The psalmist knows it too well, and he goes on to give, as if everything I've already said isn't enough. He goes on to give concrete reasons why. We can have confidence in the God of heaven. They're encouraging. They should strengthen any half-hearted Christian in the room. The confidence we have, they're laid out for us from verses 3 to 8. I've arranged them in a way I think, I hope, will help you remember them. I've arranged these confidences or reasons to be confident in the Lord who made all things under two very simple categories. The first one shows up in the things God will never do. Never do. That is to say, things that are here in this psalm, things that are negatively expressed. We see this first one in verse 3. He will not... Let your foot be moved. The immediate picture, of course, for the pilgrimage, the, the, pilgrim, the, the pilgrims as they make in their journey to Jerusalem, the immediate picture is one of the terrain of Israel and the journey to the elevated place in Jerusalem. It's dangerous. It was rocky. It was hard. Look, they didn't have highways and byways and they didn't drive BMWs to Jerusalem. They walked, maybe rode on a donkey. To slip and fall would be disastrous. It would lead even to their death. But the same is true for us. As you and I walk this road, as we journey to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly rest, which is this picture of the psalm, really, as we go, God says, He will not let your foot be moved. 
Life is treacherous, isn't it? It's full of pitfalls. It is full of hardship. Yet God will not allow the righteous to be moved. He who saved you will, in fact, deliver you to your heavenly rest. He will not lose you. Now, if that doesn't cause you to find your help in the Lord, I don't know if anything will. Second, what else does he say he would not do? Something that some of us love to do a lot. 3B and 4, he will not sleep. Like a vigilant watchman, he continues his care over you day and night. Day and night. It's personal. I was just reading with my wife this morning in family worship from um, William J. I think that's his name. Anyway, well, the Savior, even when he was alone, said he was never really alone. The God of heaven, like a vigilant watchman, continues to care for your soul, your body, your life, day and night. There is never a moment in which his eye is not on you, watching you, guiding you, caring for you. You might think, why would he bother with me? I'm just a miserable creature of dust. But that's what he says he does. There's never a time when he goes to sleep. In fact, it's the one of the points in which um, Elijah used as a mock in 1 Kings 18 of the faults of the God, the, the Baal gods. Maybe he's cry louder, he said. Why? Maybe he's sleeping. The God of Israel never sleeps. The God who's redeemed you had never sleeps. He doesn't slumber. There's never, as one commentator puts it, there is never in any moment of time in which the Lord fails to keep watch over His church and His people. Maybe easier to illustrate it. Parents, I know you love your children. You care for them. You provide for them. You do your best, I trust. Yet there are times when even you can't watch over them. When's that? When you go to sleep, yet your Father in heaven will never sleep on you, constantly, daily, every second of every day, every moment, he is watching over his children. He will not let your foot be moved, he will not sleep, and he will not allow you to face any real harm. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Look, I know some of you have suffered some pretty serious sunburn in your life. I don't say that to be funny. Natural causes, things that happened to us that we didn't do and cause to do, it just happened. Maybe it was because you were foolish and didn't use suntan lotion, but be that as it may, It was painful. I know, because I've had bad sunburn, and it was painful. How about sunstroke? That can even be life-threatening. But the imagery that the psalmist is employing here is designed to show us more about what God will will not do. 
that nothing by day or by night can really bring the redeemed to ruin. You might object. Maybe you're sitting there right now saying, I don't believe that. That's not true. You might object. I have a serious health issue. I understand. They're not easy. They're not pleasant times. Nobody wishes for these things. What about death, man? Death isn't all that pleasant. Yeah, I get that too. Yet for the believer traveling to the new Jerusalem, to the heavenly Zion, to the heavenly rest, those things are just matters by which they usher you into that place. Well, I pray indeed, and we do pray for the healing of loved ones. We pray for their well-being, that God would sustain them, and sometimes He answers that prayer in a way that you didn't expect, by giving them permanent healing. What's that? Death? In this presence? The new Jerusalem? The place where they've been journeying and traveling and going to all these years, and they're tired and they're weary, and they've had enough, and the Lord is merciful. There's no real harm Because all of it is a means by which you come into perfect union with Him. What does Paul say about that? This is not just an Old Testament concept. This is a New Testament one as well. In Romans chapter 8, again, verses that you know probably have memorized. What then shall we say to these things? Read before that. You can figure out what he's talking about. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, we... We, uh, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These are all rhetorical questions, by the way. Shall tribulation, he says, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, including disease, including sickness, including trials, including tribute, all of it, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing more to say. God will never allow His people to come to any real harm. These are things he won't do. He won't let your fit be moved. He will ensure you arrive safely on the shores of Jerusalem, to the heavenly, on the, the, the shores of the Jordan, to the heavenly rest. He will not sleep. He will continually watch over you day after day, night after night. He never grows weary or tired of doing it, and he will not allow you to face any real harm in this life. The worst kind of harm is dying without Christ. But what does he do then? What does he say he will do? Positively expressed. Verse 5. He is your keeper. He is your keeper. No, this is not a blanket promise of, of, of the health and wealth gospel and all that that heresy offers. 
It's not a promise of ease in this life. Trouble will befall you. Sickness will come to you. All matter of things will happen to you in the sin-wrecked fallen world. But the Lord will keep you. He will hem you in. He will guide you. He will not abandon you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of the sheep who hold his sheep fast in the course of their lives. Come what may, the Father will never eject you from his hand due to the work of his Son. Come what may. Let the world throw it all at me. Come what may. He is my keeper. He's the one who holds me there. He's with us. He's with you. Verse 5, again, at the end of the verse, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Not the best translation, frankly. The word there in the Hebrew is really literally shadow. Kind of changes the emphasis, doesn't it? The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The imagery is powerful. Literally, it's shadow. Next time you have occasion, take a look at your own shadow. You might think, well, that, what kind of silly exercise is that? Well, just bear with me. Take a look at your shadow and ask yourself if it would be possible to separate yourself from it. I see my shadow and I'm like, if I move, it moves with me. And if I try to separate myself, that would be, that's impossible. That's the point. God is always with you. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever is going on, God is with you. He's with you. He's like your shadow, always helping you. As your shadow is always with you, so is the God that you find your help. Third, He will protect you. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. There's a unique favor that God places upon His people. It's different than that which He does to the world. As stated above, the, does not mean that you're going to have sunshine and roses every day of the week? But it does mean when difficulties happen, He will sustain you and them, protect you from the efforts of the evil one to destroy you, because that's what he wants to do, by the way. Frankly, if the evil one had his way, he would just kill you. But he protects his people. He ensures, again, that as he's protecting you, you continue to persevere and move along the journey as you ascend to the heavenly Jerusalem. And then fourth, he guides you. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We all know the verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him. He will what? Let you figure it out on your own. No, He directs your steps. He guides and directs you as you trust and lean, as you say, like the psalmist says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. But notice it's not just a once in a while type of thing. The psalmist goes out of his way to say, from this time forth and forevermore. It's eternal. 
It's an always, 24-7, 365, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for as long as the Lord gives you life on this earth, He will indeed guide you. Why? That you might arrive safely to the place of worship, to the place of the heavenly rest, to the place that we all want to be. We all want to dwell. Where can you find real help? And stuff and things and people and relationships and all that other junk? No. You find it ultimately in the Lord. And as you read and meditate on this psalm, you should be able to say, my help comes from Him. I trust only Him with my whole life. Whatever comes, He will not abandon me or leave me to the dust. He will bring me safely to my heavenly rest in the new Jerusalem. I will not be moved because he is with me, watching over me, guiding me. You should be able to say that with confidence, knowing because this is what God has said about you and what he would do. Look, no, it's not always going to be easy. But there will be, ta- there will be times, indeed, when you don't feel that way. I know. There are times when I don't feel that way. And I don't think you're all that different from me. There may be times when you just don't feel it. You're not feeling it. God seems like a billion miles away that he's left me in the dust. He doesn't care about me anymore. Well, you know what? That's just, that's just a bunch of lies you're telling yourself. Psalm 121 says he would never do these things. And while you feel that way, it doesn't change the fact. It's true, nonetheless, God does not abandon His people. You belong to Him. He will never allow you to be moved. In that, you have great reason to rejoice and praise and live. And so how did the saints of old navigate this life? Remember I started that way? How did they do it? My help comes from the Lord, they said. How do the saints today navigate this life? My help comes from the Lord. Thus you say, my help, all of it, in every moment and every circumstance of this life comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who saved me, who rescued me, who protects me, and who will indeed deliver me to my eternal home. Our help comes from the name and the help of the Lord who's placed his eternal love upon you. Amen. Father, we thank you for the reminder, indeed, the clear teaching of your word on this point. Forgive us for the ways in which we seek help in other things. Help us to meditate deeply upon these things that you said you'd never do and the things that you always are doing. And may we draw comfort and strength from all of it. Even as the pilgrims of old, the, the pilgrims of old were making their way to Jerusalem, even as we are, may you help us that our foot might never be moved, continually watching over us, keeping us, helping us, protecting us, and delivering us safely to where you are. Be merciful to us, for we will wander but you will never let us go. And so help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.